you have a copy of God's Word, turn please to Hebrews chapter 3, New Testament, and to Hebrews chapter 3. We're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, and we come now to a little further on in this chapter. Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to read just the verses we're considering this morning. We've looked at the opening six verses, so we pick up at verse 7. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation and the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Amen. May God write His Word on our hearts. May we receive it by faith and with profit this morning. Let's pray once more. Lord, we do desire that thy goodness, like a fetter, would bind our wandering hearts to thee. We desire that thy grace will bring us safely to our home at the last. And as we read this portion and consider it, as we give attention to it, we pray that thy speaking voice may be heard. We need to hear from thee. We've heard a lot this past week, all sorts of headlines, all sorts of information, but we come into a place of refuge, the house of God, and we need to hear from our God. So cleanse our hearts, Renew a right spirit within us. Help us to take heed how we hear. And may thy kingdom be extended by the preaching of thy precious word. So come to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Westminster Confession of Faith, which of course is one of the documents that forms where we stand doctrinally as a church, in chapter 17... And the opening paragraph says, They whom God hath accepted in His Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, 
and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. There's a lot in there. And this is why you should take time on occasion to read through the confession and pause. What is it saying? And where is it taking it from? And what does it mean? The statement communicates a number of things. First, those who have once been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are the elect, are saved for eternity, and can never completely fall from that state and be lost. Second, the reason for this perseverance is not man's power, but the unchangeable love of God toward his people. And thirdly, the implication is that while possessors of eternal life are secure, mere professors have neither life nor security. A vital part of my ministry is to communicate the gospel so that you are brought to assurance of salvation. Why I preach? The way I preach is one of the chief objects of God's call upon my life and purpose for me being here is to bring you to assurance of salvation. And that means exposing false assurance, should it exist, and strengthening weak faith where it may exist. We don't want there to be a mix-up. We don't want those with false assurance to put themselves in a place either of imagining they have strong faith or imagining they have weak faith when they're devoid of any real faith. Nor do we wish those who have weak faith to be unsettled to the point that they're questioning and wondering whether or not they really are the Lord's. That faith that exists has to be strengthened by the help of God. This is precisely what the apostle is doing in Hebrews. He is speaking to a mixed multitude, as the preacher always addresses, nearly always addresses a mixed multitude. And he says in verse 6, we didn't read there, but Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And this is what we want. We want believers to never jettison their faith, but to look at the language of verse 6, hold fast, hold fast. Keep on holding fast no matter what. I don't want you to hold fast to a false profession or to exhibit a false confidence, but to hold fast to the true, the real hope that should be firm and is firm unto the end if you hold fast to it. So I stand before you, and I know there are different types of people in my presence. Some of you are particularly prone to self-examination and negativity. You lean in that direction. Your position before God is constantly measured by what you're doing and not balanced by what Christ has done. You're, you're more looking at self than you are looking to Christ. There are others that exhibit a false confidence because their faith has no foundation. You don't have the real thing. There's no evidence of a changed heart. The key difference is that a changed heart will believe God even when it doesn't understand what God is doing and will even believe at times to personal loss. 
And those that are before the apostle, those that he is addressing in this epistle, some of them are exhibiting an inclination, more than an inclination. You get to chapter 10, you realize that he's addressing them leaving the, the, the visible body that comes together, and he is calling them not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So he's not looking at a people where there's no evidence and he's just imagining there's a problem. There's evidence of a problem. There's evidence of a drifting, evidence of a going away. And he is addressing such. He wants to make sure that the real root of the matter is there. And he is therefore endeavoring to address them in such a way they understand that a true changed heart that God has given will continue to the end no matter what. So the passage we come to is a welcome check to faithful believers and a needful warning to careless professors. So what we're considering here this morning in verses 7 through 11 is what I've titled, Warnings Against Unbelief. Warnings Against Unbelief. And there are three headings that will pull together our thoughts for this morning. Divine exhortation, divine grief, and divine wrath. Divine exhortation, divine grief, and divine wrath or divine anger. So let's look first, and this will probably take up the bulk of our time, the exhortation from verse 7. We'll see how we get here, how we get on. But wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Note a number of things here. First, the authority of what is said. He cites from Psalm 95, the latter part of that psalm. And quoting that passage is intended to bring the hearers to visualize or have in their mind that well-known event of the people coming out of Egypt, being in the wilderness, and coming to the brink of the promised land. And the question he is wanting them to ask is, am I, each individual asking the question, am I like my forefathers, where I am brought to the brink of the promised land, but I do not enter in? You'll remember what happened there. Twelve spies were sent. Now, God didn't send them. I just, as, a, as an aside, God did not say to Moses, send twelve in to check out the land. That was a condescension on the part of God. He mercifully permitted them to do that. There was never a divine exhortation, send twelve spies in. But the people began to halt. Twelve spies are sent in. They search out the land. You remember what happens. Two of them come back. Here's what's going on. But we are well able to take it. Let us go up and possess it. Ten are saying, no, there are giants, there are walls, all sorts of hindrances. There's no possible way we can proceed. And the people, their hearts sink. They believe the evil report, as it is said in Scripture. But I want you to see what the Apostle is doing here. And quoting from Psalm 95, he is showing his view of Scripture. Verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith... Now, we'll find later that David is the author of this psalm. But instead of saying, as David says, he says, as the Holy Ghost saith. Now, this is important. We are getting the Apostle's view of Scripture here. 
Psalm 95 was penned by a man, David. And nonetheless, it's the very speech of God is the word of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, verse 7 says, as the Holy Ghost saith, that's present tense. In other words, it's not just what the Holy Ghost said when David was living, but it's what the Holy Ghost continues to say. He said it in David's time, surely, but he continues to say it. Now we find our Lord Jesus speaking in this way as well. Turn for a moment to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. In a day of liberalism, in a day when the Scripture is sometimes used simply as a a springboard into political activism and social issues, and we reject the inerrancy of Scripture and the fact that it is the living, inspired Word of God, we need to understand how Jesus understood Scripture and how the apostles understood it and to adopt the same view. Matthew 22, verse, we'll read from verse 29. So they're coming to him, the Sadducees that is, querying about the matter of the resurrection. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. It's not new for those with clerical garb to not know the Scriptures, Right? We live in such a day, but as was true even in Jesus' day. You don't know the Scriptures. And yet this is your job. Your job is to know the Scriptures. And yet you don't. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Underline that. It was spoken to you. Jesus is saying that what was said... What you find in the Old Testament wasn't limited to its context and the people directly addressed. It has an ongoing word to every generation. It is saying something to you, which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, they're astonished at his doctrine. He's bringing Scripture to bear with relevance upon their hearts. So this is the view the Lord Jesus has, and the apostle takes the same view. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, he is saying, he said it when David penned it, but he's saying it even now to you. This is important to grasp. It gives us an understanding of Scripture and opposes two extremes. First, It opposes the thought that you need a human instrument to hear from God. Like old-fashioned Roman Catholicism. You can't expect to know what God is saying to you when you read the Bible. You need the priest. You need the church. That is opposed by this. Jesus saying to the Sadducees, God has said this to you. The apostles writing, quoting from Psalm 95, The Holy Ghost saith, this is what he's saying right now to you. But second, it opposes the thought that what God is saying is chiefly sensed by a voice in your head. That you you get to say, God has said to me, and it's some subjective experience where you say, here's what God has said to me. (laughs) Now, I know that God can lead us, and he uses his word to guide us in various, various ways, but... When we start to begin to place an emphasis upon 
The direction of our life is something purely subjective. It is easily manipulated, and many do it. They have done it in the past. They do it right now. Right across America, even now, pastors are getting up and saying, God told me this week. God said to me this week. And what they're saying cannot be found in Scripture. But they want you manipulated by what they're saying. They want you to act in a certain way. They're desiring a certain response. They're not saying it merely for information's sake. They're manipulating you. A young man doesn't come to me and say, I am called to the ministry because I've read the Great Commission. There's more to it than that. He has to prove himself. That call will be confirmed. I'm not saying there isn't an internal inclination, that God begins to give a sense of direction where you begin to desire something, and and there may be others that will make even input into your life. And they'll say certain things, but you never really know the call until all the parts come together. You never are really sure until all the various moving parts are sealed. But I, I've witnessed I've witnessed even in circles very close to us, and I, I need to be careful here. Where men have gone in and manipulated congregations who are looking for a pastor, saying, God has called me here. Before they've met, before they've talked, before there's been any vote, anything like that, they've gone in and they've said, God has called me here. That's like a politician getting up and going to the people and saying, I'm your candidate. I, I sh- you have to vote for me. It's politic. It's been a grief to witness it. When you say God told me, I want you to be able to point to Scripture and it's saying the same thing to me. Because that's what Jesus did. God spoke to you. And he could turn up the passages in Exodus and say, there it is. And it says the same thing to you as it says to everyone else. And the same is true here in Hebrews. He is quoting as the Holy Ghost is saying. He is saying this. He says it to me. He says it to you. And of course, the benefit of that when we understand is that it's continuing to say it to us. The Holy Ghost still says these words to us. The application of Psalm 95 is still relevant now in your life. So we're not looking back and saying, let's muse over some ancient document and give our thoughts about it. This is up to date. This is real. God is speaking in His Word. There is a relevance then to Scripture. We don't have to make it relevant. You don't have to get me to come up with all sorts of ingenious ways to try and make Scripture relevant to your life. It is relevant to your life. Royalty doesn't, if royalty decides to visit a particular part of the kingdom, does not come and ask, is it a relevant time for me to visit It is my kingdom. They go when they want. And the expectation is that they will be acknowledged when they're there. They will be received. How much greater then when God 
addresses men. We don't get to sit back and say, is this relevant? It is relevant. God is speaking. God is relevant. Which, which let me just, I have, to, I have to make this application. Especially children, young people, even, even adults. You know every time you walk in here that God is going to address you. You know that. Therefore, prepare like it. Prepare like it. I understand sometimes when people need to go up, go to the washroom, even when they're, you know, you've made all preparations for it. It happens, children, even adults as well. But have a mentality of preparing yourself. I'm going in, I'm meeting with God. God is meeting with me. This is an appointment with the living God. What does that mean? How I prepare myself, how I conduct myself while I'm there. I don't say this with any great sense of uh, pride, but it does reflect something of my zealous, <laughs> my zeal when I was first converted. One of my friends in the church when I was first saved and a Christian at 19 was, let's just say, verbose. <laughs> like to talk a lot. <laughs> Always had something to say. And this would happen in the service too, in worship. Always something to say. And I'd warn him, stop it. I don't want to hear it. Enough. Or whatever. And in, you know, boys being boys, uh, there was one occasion where I actually... Do you, do you understand what I say when you talk about dead legs? Do you know what a dead leg is? It's like when you punch in a certain point of the muscle that kind of causes the leg to go numb. That's what I did. That was like just to his thigh. It was right there by me. I said, this is a good punch in the leg. It was like a warning shot. Stop it. No, I, I don't think I would do that now. I'm maybe a little more uh, by the Spirit's help sanctified than punching people in God's house. But uh, that, that was trying to get my point across. I am here to hear from God. So the apostle is addressing the people and he is indicating the authority of what is going on. But see it. Look at what's happening. The events of the wilderness, these words were a warning to them. They, what, what was going on in Moses' day, what God was saying in his day, as Moses was calling to the people, that was relevant then. As the record is given centuries later by David in Psalm 95, that is also relevant then. Centuries pass again, first century. The apostles using the same language, it is relevant right there to them. And we're centuries moved on from there, and it's still relevant. God's still speaking through this language. It's not Moses, not David, not Paul. It is God speaking. And this is, this is, we need to hear it. Because where does our hope come from? Verse 6 talks about hope. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm on to the end, where does our hope stem? Is it not in part hearing from God and His Word? Romans 15 verse 4. What does Paul say there? Whatsoever things were written aforetime, that is in the past, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So we, we, if, if we want to have hope, we need to listen to the Word. And by listening to the Word, it will strengthen and gird up our hope so that we don't fall foul to the warnings that are expressed here in this passage. So we need to 
hear this authority, the authority of what is said. It is coming from God the Holy Spirit. But notice also the urgency of when to act. The urgency of when to act. God is addressing, as the Holy Ghost saith, present tense, right now, to them, to us, today. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, and so on. Today. Implies two things. An immediate response is desired, and a limited opportunity is offered. An immediate response is desired, and a limited opportunity is offered. The immediate response is verse 1 of the passage. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Consider the faithfulness of Christ who was faithful as Moses was faithful in an unfaithful generation. And now you're living in an unfaithful generation. Consider the faithful one. Keep your eyes on the faithful one. Don't drift and fall into step with the unfaithful and depart the living God. Consider the faithful one. Keep your eyes on the one that was faithful. And we are to do this immediately. And if we don't, it's a limited time. That's the idea of today. It gets a sense of, it's limited, doesn't it? When, when someone says, you know, when, when, when stores say, and you're going to have it, come up with Black Friday and so on, they're going to, like, like the sale is Black Friday. Act today. Act now. If you don't, you walk in two days later, you'll not get that 40% off. It has to be now. Of course, that's what is being said here. Act now, there's urgency here. Urgency. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as He stood over Jerusalem, he, he brought that urgency in as well when He wept over it. In Luke 19, verse 41, when He was come near, He beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. He had an opportunity. The day He was here, a day of opportunity, a day of grace. You spurned it. Urgency. Some of you, some of you, I don't know where you are. I, I honestly, I don't know. Only God can assess exactly where you are, and hopefully you can make some assessment as well. But there's a negotiation that goes on in your mind, a negotiation of devotion, of consecration to God that you're delaying, you're, you, you, you gamble with God. You imagine you have more time. You desire, you, you know that this is what the Christian life looks like, but I, I want to delay that kind of devotion to another time. And God says, today, today, if you're planning to get serious as a Christian, today is the only time you're promised. It is now or never. But thirdly, also, as we consider this divine exhortation, Authority, urgency, gravity. The gravity of the sins committed. What did they do? What were the great sins? Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation and the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. They erred in their hearts. The issue of what happened back there in the wilderness... The problem, no doubt, David felt in his generation, which is why he's recording it in Psalm 95, the issue faced by the apostle in the first century looking at these Hebrews is all the same. There is an error of the heart, a problem in the heart. 
So he says in verse 8, Harden not your hearts. Verse 10, They do always err in their heart. What does it mean to have a hardened heart? Why does it matter whether your heart is hard or not hard? Why is that a problem? Why, why, why does the makeup of my heart matter? Why is it described as hard, no doubt in contrast with, with soft or tender? Because the whole gamut of Scripture is that the hard heart indicates a lack of receptiveness to what God is saying. The words bounce off. They don't penetrate. The parable of the sower. Different types of ground. Some of the seed falls on rocky ground. It can't bear lasting fruit. So it's a, it's a way of reflecting the problem of how you hear, really. The heart affects the ear. Because the heart is hard, the ear doesn't respond. There is no, it, it can hear. It's, it's, there, there is a, there's, a, there's an ability to understand the words that are being communicated, but there isn't a willingness to respond to what the words are saying. So, again, in Moses' day, did they hear from God? Absolutely, they heard from God. In David's day, did they hear from God? Absolutely, they heard from God. In the apostles' day, did they hear from God? They heard from God. This generation, do you hear from God? You hear from God. Every time the Bible's open, every time you read it, you hear from God. But what is going on in the heart? In Jeremiah's day, in Jeremiah chapter 5, God, through his prophet, gives a warning. And you can see this mixing of the idea of, of the heart and their ears and their hearing and so on. Jeremiah 5.21, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence? It goes on to say, But this people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they, in the, say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God. They see the issue. They have a revolting and rebellious heart. What's that doing? What is that rebellious heart doing? It means they have eyes but they can't see. They have ears but they can't hear. Their spiritual faculties aren't working because the heart is hard. It's rebellious. We're memorizing Isaiah 55, aren't we? What does it say in verse 3? Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. Hear and your soul shall live. If you have a hard heart, you, you stop hearing. So, how, how do we express a hard heart? How can you ask yourself the question, do I fall into this sin? As the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Now you're hearing, you're hearing from God. Today you're hearing from God. How might you assess whether or not you're hearing with a tender heart or a hard heart? One might, way might be inattention. If there's inattention, there's possibly a hard heart. Now, I know, 
try to calibrate the temperature in here sometimes. It's not always easy. Cooler weather comes, heat comes on, start feeling it, get a little drowsy. I've said it before, I would always like the temperature about a degree or so lower than what you want it to be, just so it keeps you on the cool side to help you here. That's why Spurgeon went and broke all the windows in the church when the deacons wouldn't get, regulate the temperature correctly. He made his point. Who broke all the windows? Oh, this is the providence of God here. <laughs> Keep, so people can hear better chilly in body, but you're hearing the voice of God than having comfort physically and not hearing. But if there's a real inattention, you know, if you could sit on your phone, for example, while you're in the house of God, if you can think about what you were doing yesterday or what you plan to do tomorrow and you're not thinking about the, that inattention, that inattention should, should bring a humbling signal, my heart's hardening. My heart is hardening, if not already hard. So, so, so examine yourself. Is there an inattentiveness in you? Not only inattention, indifference. That is to say, I, I don't even care. I don't care what's said today. I'm not interested in what is being said. Not interested in what's being said. What are you going to do? You're going to complain because the preacher's not a great preacher? Isn't your style? That's up to you. It's fine. <laughs> I don't mind about that at all. But when the Bible is open, when the Bible is open, you don't get to blame the personality of the preacher. When you gather corporately to worship God, you don't get to complain because the prophet or the preacher or the priest isn't the one you hoped might be attending to you on any given occasion. You're there to meet with God. So you don't get to be indifferent. If there's indifference, there's a hardness of heart. And then the infidelity. That's, that's where you, won't, you hear what's being said and there's a legitimate going away from, an unfaithfulness to the Word. The Word says this, you're going to do that. That that shows a hardness of heart. And there's a progression here. Inattention, indifference, infidelity. You can see it. That's how it begins. You ask yourself, how does someone who once served in the church, held office in the church, might even have been a pastor in a church, how do they get to the point where they have a hard heart? It began with inattention. They weren't paying attention. And then they became indifferent, where they didn't really care. And then they began to hear and do something else entirely. Hearts hard. Scary. It should frighten you. And one of the early ways to sense this, I always remember Dr. Cairns talking about, and he gave a story to illustrate it, which I'll spare you, but many of you may have heard it before anyway. We talked about being easily blessed. Being easily blessed. And, and the, the, the grace and the benefit of being easily blessed the person who's easily blessed is the opposite of the hard heart. His heart is so tender that the very utterances of God from his word, without even exhortation from the preacher, bless his heart. He can go to the house of God. He can go even to maybe an apostate denomination where there's nothing. There's nothing. He goes on vacation, thinks he's going to a faithful church, finds himself in some church where there is nothing. Nothing. Just garbage. But the word was opened. Or he goes to a funeral, attends a funeral, nothing to be said. Minister's a waste of time. Can't give any real meaningful exhortation from the Word. But the Word was open. And they walk away and say, God bless me from His Word. They were easily blessed. 
That's where you want to get to. So they erred in their heart. Also, they tempted their God. They tempted their God. You look at verse 8. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Note the two phrases, in the provocation and in the day of temptation. If it was written in Hebrew, which of course it's not, Greek translated into English, but if it was written in Hebrew, it would have the names, the proper names of Massa and Meribah. So the apostle is drawing our mind to that occasion, Exodus 17, where we have Massa and Meribah, and those words, those names were given because they communicate both these ideas, provocation and temptation. And some have read this and they thought, well, you know, there's maybe the provocation, they're provoking God and God is tempting them or testing them. But that's not the idea. This is, both, this is coming from the people. The people are provoking the people are tempting or testing God. Now, I can't go back there and look at all that would ha- happen there historically, but the question arises whether God can meet our needs, whether God can be trusted. And the sense of the language is, as David looks back, as the apostle draws from Psalm 95, he is, he is, he is, he is establishing this kind of atmosphere that was existing in the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. Can God be trusted? Let's put them to the test. And they come to points and there's no water. Where's the water? Or they're fed up with the manna from heaven. Give us something else. Another psalmist puts the question, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? It's this whole idea of doubt. It's the whole idea of testing God. Can God be tested? Should we be loyal to Him? Now think of that for a moment. Just think of that. What had they already experienced? They'd been in slavery in Egypt. They'd be crying out to God, deliver us, deliver us. For generations they'd been looking for it. And God in His mercy steps down. And through Moses as His instrument comes and the people are delivered and brought out of their position of slavery. Set free and you think, surely the Lord has proven His care, His love, the fact that we can trust Him. They come to the brink of the Red Sea, they cry again. What's going to happen? And again, God parts the sea. They pass over on dry ground. They get to the other side. They see in the shore all their enemies washed up. So, so now they're realizing hey, they can't even circle and get round to us. They're all dead. God has killed all our enemies. They're washing up on the shore. They're gone. We don't even have to fear what's going to happen behind us anymore. God has dealt with them all. We're completely set free. Still, still, The frame of mind was provocation and testing God. Unbelievable. And how long did it go on? Verse 9, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. This went on for 40 years. Over and over and over again, they exhibited this challenging of God. Three things, really, you can sum it up. They questioned God's ability to protect and provide for them, murmured against the one appointed by God to lead them, and regretted leaving the world they came from. Questioning, murmuring, regretting. That's what they did. The same is happening in the day the apostle is addressing the people. 
their question, can God take care of us when the community turns against us? When the Roman Empire begins to assail against those that are professors in Jesus Christ, questioning God's ability to care for them, murmuring against the one who had appointed by God to lead them. Who was that? Jesus Christ. They're murmuring against Christ. They're murmuring as to His goodness and His mercy and His care and so on. Murmuring, wanting to go back, go back to the old ways, which plays into regretting leaving the world they came from. Let's go back to the old sacrifices. Let's go back to the old Judaism and its ways. Let's go back to the temple and the the, the, the synagogue and engage in all the old ritualism of the old economy. They want to go back. And that's become Egypt now. And they want to go back. So you have an exhortation here, divine exhortation. I said that would take up most of our time. And it has. We'll take, secondly then, divine grief. Divine grief. Because as you read on, verse 10... Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and have not known my ways. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation. This is God's statement concerning that generation. Now this raises my first point, our first sub-point here is a theological question. What does it mean that God was grieved? I want to just think about that, and I wish I had more time, but I I want to quickly consider the theological implication of that language. God being grieved. Does that mean God is emotional? Does that mean, like some of you parents might feel in church today, that you've been grieved at maybe how one or two of your children have gotten on in the past week because they haven't been compliant? You see, you're grieved. Or some of you that see children going away from God, and they're gone entirely, and you're grieved. There's a certain emotional aspect to that within you. Is that what it's saying about God? This brings us to the theological uh, teaching of divine impassibility. It's a big word. You don't have to be worried about it. Divine impassibility just refers to God being incapable of passion emotion, or suffering. Some of the early Christological and Trinitarian heresies led to belief that the divine nature suffered on the cross. The divine nature is suffering on the cross, and it's erroneous. Divine nature cannot suffer. In addition, some have believed and still talk in such ways so as to present God as if he had the passions of men. God's God's heart is hurting, or God, God is grieved, like a literal way that like you might be grieved. But any view of God that suggests He has changing passions, changing emotions, argues that God, listen now, this is important, because we're living in a day where even in conservative, so-called biblical circles, have drifted from the historic understanding of who God is, and they're doing it because of our psychological age. And our psychological age wants God to be like us. And this is where they err. This is where they go wrong. They begin with man and determine things about God beginning with man. So, because you can feel empathy and sympathy and love and care and you can suffer and so on and that helps you and changes you in some way, 
Therefore, God must be able to do those things as well because you see, you see value in those things. You see value in sympathy and empathy and, and love and suffering. You, 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 can, you redeem those qualities and you say, God cannot be God without having those things. But be careful about making conclusions about the nature of God when you began with man. What do we know about God? We know He is unchangeable. This is one of the encouragements about the nature of God. He cannot be changed. He's not subject to changeability. Thus, divine impassibility, the fact that He can't suffer or feel emotions, is rooted in the biblical truth of His immutability, His unchangeability. Boys and girls, that's what I mean by immutable, He can't be changed. Right? God doesn't change. Our God changes not. We sing about it in some of our most well-known hymns. God can't be changed. And we see from this passage then that God is grieved. And we ask the question, does this mean that he is, he is changing in some way or He was changed or affected by what went on there? How do we understand this? Again, I, I'm, I'm running out of time quickly here, but the simplest way for me to explain this given the limitations of our time this morning is in this way. Think of the emotional language of God the way you think of the corporeal language of God. Corporeal, I mean physical. Like we talk about the hand of God or the eye of God or the ear of God. Now, you know, I would say more of you are aware of the fact that God has no physicality. He is, he is spirit, John 4. God is spirit. So, so you know when you hear ear, you're not saying God has some physical ear whereby he hears or his eye, he doesn't have some eyeball with an iris, pupil, and so on. He doesn't have that. He is spirit, pure spirit. So think of it like that. Ascribe the same truth that you know about the corporeal aspect of God when he communicates to you, like he hears you, or the ear of God, or the hand of God, and so on. Think about the emotions the same way. That he doesn't actually grieve as a response to something that's happening, like being affected by things, or his anger is not some response the way your anger might be to a certain series of events or something that happens. Technical terms of these are anthropomorphisms, talking about God's hand, or anthropopathisms, when it talks about God's emotions. It uses them in Scripture, but it's condescending so that we understand these things a little more. John Calvin, when commenting on God's repentance, as it talks about sometimes in Scripture, Calvin explained the depiction as accommodating our capacity to help us understand what is going on. Quote, Now the mode of accommodation is for him to represent himself to us, not as he is in himself, but as he seems to us although he is beyond all disturbance of mind. He goes on to say, whenever we hear that God is angered, we ought not to imagine any emotion, that is to say passion in him, but rather to consider that this expression has been taken from our own human experience. So how do we understand it then? You read like here, he was grieved. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation. How do you understand it? You understand it by divine activity. The same way you do about the physicality or the corporeal aspect of God. When you hear about his hand, you're thinking about what he's doing, aren't you? It's like, how is that hand at work? 
Now, it isn't a physical hand, but he did something there. He's doing something. Or when he listens, it's activity. It's divine activity. It's the same here. It's an expression of his activity. John Owen says these expressions, wherever they are used, are signs of great and signal actions. Now, this is a little theological. I get it. But we have to maintain this. We have to understand this. Do not fall foul of shaping God by your own understanding of your existence and experience. You will, you, you will, you will rob yourself. And there are two things, two things that, that we lose if we are not careful here. First, we remove the comfort of God's steadfast and unchangeable love for us. If God is reactive, if He reacts to things, then we can't be sure about that love that is steadfast and endures to the end. That it doesn't waver. As I live in my wayward way or ups and downs or don't get everything right, that He is capable because He's unchangeable to love me steadfastly. Now, of course, that's rooted in Christ. I get it. But, but there's no wavering. And he he's, he's, he's just has this perfect, consistent, eternal love for us. Second, we weaken the glory of the incarnation. The incarnation unites the impassable nature of God with a suffering humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that as we progress through this, where we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. Well, if God can be, then why the incarnation? If God can suffer in His divine nature, why take on humanity? This is the glory of the incarnation. It's the fact that God, who can't be touched or feel, takes a nature that can be. suffers. What glory of that. I mean, ask yourself, would you, would, you take, would you take a more vulnerable nature by choice, would you? Would you take into union with yourself something that makes you more changeable in your existence? Do you want to be more easily blown about by the wind and so on? Or in danger of doing so? But God takes on our humanity. In Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, how was God grieved? Strictly speaking, I say it in one sentence. It is God's activity in the face of the sins of those so richly favored by Him. God's activity in the face of the sins of those so richly favored by Him. That's the theological question. You have the historical reason given here as well. Look at the text. They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Just run through these three things here. The principal sin, what was it? A problem of the heart. We've looked at that already. The perseverance in this sin, always. They do always err in their heart. This is it's not just the fact that the sin, the issue of the heart, they kept on in it. And then the resulting influence of this sin was ignorance have not known my ways. Their preference for sin meant they could not understand the ways of God. Their preference for sin meant they couldn't understand. Now, I could go on a tangent here, and I could talk about how that gets manifested in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how the ignorance comes more darkly on Israel, upon the people of Christ's generation, because 
their desire to hold on to forms of sin, the fear of man, so on, meant they got even more ignorant of what the Son of God was actually doing. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. We have then divine anger, verse 11. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Again, you have something that reflects emotion, an expression of wrath against rebellion. This is God's activity on display. It's not like human emotion, but divine activity towards their sin. What's the penalty against their sin? They shall not enter into my rest. We'll look at this more as we proceed. But clearly, let me just say this, clearly rest is not just the promised land. He's quoting from Psalm 95. David's already in the land. So he understood then, there's an entering into rest that my generation, some of which are not entering into. And the same is true for the apostle. There's a rest you haven't entered into. And the same is true today. There's a rest some of you have not entered into. It's not the promised land. It's a rest that you find only in Jesus Christ. It is a Sabbath that only He can provide. So the penalty against their sin is that they don't get this rest. There is no heavenly promised land for them. And the permanence of their condition, I swear in my wrath. This language indicates an irrevocable sentence being pronounced by God. There's no changing of it. I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. They will not obtain rest. As we close, this passage before us brings us to consider a historical event. We've considered that already. Spies sent into the promised land, all but Joshua and Caleb bringing back an evil report. And you know, you go back and you read that passage, you go and look over that history and you see them. They, I mean, it's not like they weren't convinced as to the goodness of the land. They saw it. The land is as good as we ever imagined, even better. They come, no doubt, having tasted and also bearing the very fruit of the land. Remember in Numbers 13, 23? cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bear it between two upon a staff. These grapes, as huge grapes, were two men. Two men, they have it tied to a staff, so two men carry it back. It's that heavy. And they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs, we're told. And the apostle is addressing people similarly. Why? They have tasted the fruit of the heavenly Canaan. Week by week, they're, they're tasting of gospel invitation. What it means that the Son of God condescended, came into this world, lived for us, and died upon a cross, and rose again from the dead. They've tasted of it. They've come in. They've made some assent to it. They've said that they believe it, that they're going on a path, professing themselves to believe it. They've tasted it. Well, some have tasted it to the point they maybe were even teaching it. And they were saying to others, Oh, come, come, come and look. Is this not the Christ like the woman of Samaria? And they're inviting others and talking of it. But then things got tough. Then things got hard. 
Things didn't go according to plan. Their faith in Christ began to cost them something. What they tasted in their mouth. The sweetness of it was not sweet enough amidst the bitterness of the circumstances they found themselves in. God still brings his people through difficult days. And there's a wilderness that we are still in. Is this vile world a friend to grace to help us onto God? We sang, or rather the choir sang, about checking the rising doubt and the rebel sigh. The rebel sigh. I'm struck by that. The rebel sigh. Sighing with a little seed of rebellion as to the dark clouds of divine providence. Why me, Lord? Why this? Why now? The rebel sigh. Are you there? Are you there? This word is a word from God that says today, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Consider the faithful Son of God who bore more darkness than we can ever imagine and all our sins laid upon him on Calvary's cross where he suffered cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He did all this. So whatever darkness you may face, it will never be the darkness of hell for your sin. May God help you. May help you to keep going on. I think of the words of, of Caleb when he said, let us go up at once and possess it. It's a good gospel word, isn't it? There's the heavenly land. There's Christ, our eternal rest. Let us go up at once and possess it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't leave it to tomorrow. Let's bow together in prayer. We're all going to leave in a matter of minutes. And with that leaving comes the, the return to the hustle and bustle of the afternoon. And maybe some of you need to do business with God. You need to cry out for mercy. You need to turn to Christ today. If you need help in doing so, please seek me out. I'll be glad to talk with you. Open up the Word of God. Answer your questions. Help you. Because it is time to seek the Lord. Gracious God, bless thy Word. What has been of man, let it fall to the ground. What has been of God, let it stand for time and for eternity. 
Go with thy people. Help them. Oh, help us all. May we keep going on, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. No matter what we're facing, and some of your people are facing hard times, we don't minimize it, not for a second. But please, God, don't let them harden their hearts. Keep us tender. Keep us hearing from thee and obeying. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Thank you.